Hello, beautiful people. This is www.flashblackradio. This is Culture Shock. I am DaVinci Parks, AKA Lee Bennett III, and I wanted to take a moment to dial things back a little bit. Um, if you've been listening to Flash Black Radio over the past few months, you've probably tripped across our, our serial podcast and our, meaning the usual suspects, serial podcast. Uh, shit you might have missed and one of the regular contributors of that show is one Christy Hunt now for those who do not know Christy Hunt is somebody I've known since my freshman year of college so we go back a good ways and when I decided I wanted to do the whole podcasting thing she was on the very short list of people I wanted to be a contributor so I was very thrilled that she agreed and said yes so I was glad to be asked. Yep. So today we are actually taking the time to do a little bit of backtracking, ladies and gentlemen. I'm pretty sure if you've listened to Christy Hunt, she said one or two things that make you pause. Like, what did she just say? And I've known her again since freshman year of college. That's been over 20 years at this point. Yeah, there you go. So even after 22 years, I think we both still say things that make each other say, what did this dude just say? What did she just say? Which is good. You know, you don't want things to get stale. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you, if you are not familiar, if you are, welcome back, Miss Christy Hunt, a.k.a. K. Savage. Hi, friends. How y'all doing? I'm doing well, doing well, doing well. So look, Christy, I mean, this is this is really literally going to be an interview all about you. This is an opportunity for the listeners to be able to get a better understanding of who you are as an individual, whatever that means, how you identify, self-identify, your story, how you became to be who you are, all those things. So I just wanted to trip through a couple things whatever with you, just ask questions. And honestly, it's going to be an opportunity for me to learn um, as well, because we've known each other for years, but there's certain things that just in conversation, maybe it didn't come up organically, so we didn't discuss it. So right, right. opportunities to learn. So uh, I'm going to get right into it. I'm ready. Philly, tell me about it. Um, it's dirty. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a strange little place. So I was born in the city, but like my mother lived in the suburbs, but her and I had quite a contentious relationship. So I spent a lot of time in the city with my grandmother. So, um, I spent a lot of time on uh, 63rd Street and I spent a lot of time traipsing around areas of the city that um, now I'm like, whoa, what the fuck were you doing there? I still don't understand how I ended up there. Um, (laughs) And um, so I had this weird kind of trafficy existence. Like, you know how the kids from traffic were like, you know, they were in private Catholic school, but like in their downtime, they were like in the hood getting high. Yeah. I I just wasn't getting high. You know what I'm saying? I was in the hood with niggas who were selling drugs <laughs> to motherfuckers who were getting high. Right. Um, and it was like... Was that, was that where you went to after? Is that where you lived? Or is that where you just hung out? 
Well, so it's kind of weird because my whole neighborhood was the neighborhood that I grew up in where my mother lives is outside of Philadelphia. It's in this tiny little place called Golf Mills slash King of Prussia. Um, and it's weird because when my parents went looking for a house in the 70s before I was born, you know, redlining was still in effect. And one of the things that people really don't know about Philadelphia and the surrounding areas is that it's like, um, I think it's the fourth most segregated city in the country. Mm. And um, it always has been. Um, and so when my parents were looking for houses, even though they were in the suburbs, I lived in an all black neighborhood because black people were only shown houses in all black neighborhoods. And these all black neighborhoods existed because back in the day, white folks didn't want their servants to have to travel back and forth from the city because, you know, what I'm saying don't nobody want to be waiting around for niggas to commute. You know what I'm saying? And you want them to be well rested since you're going to work the fuck out of them. So you might as well let them live next door. So in the suburbs of Philadelphia, even on, you know, some of your listeners may or may not know of, you know, what they call the main line. So this is train line that used to go from uh, downtown Philadelphia way out to the counties um, to Paoli. And um, they call that the main line. And so the neighborhoods along that train line are called the main line. And so even along all of these like neighborhoods where all of these wealthy white people live, you know what I'm saying? There was always a black half of the town that historically was where the drivers, the cooks, the maids, you know what I'm saying? The, 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 the service workers who, you know what I'm saying, worked for these wealthy white people, they lived close by. So my parents lived in um, this little pocket of blackness or that's where they bought their house and that's where I grew up with my mom. And a lot of the kids that I grew up with were actually the children of hustlers, you know what I'm saying, who moved out to the county with that good drug money. Mm -hmm. So it's weird because um, a lot, you know, um, some of the kids in my neighborhood were hustlers kids. Some of the kids in my neighborhood were kids of parents you know, who uh, maybe works for like the uh, SEPTA, which is our, the bus company or, you know, different city agencies or different colleges and universities. And even though they wanted to get out of the city, you know what I'm saying? Many of them were from the same neighborhoods, knew each other, and they really were just relocated to a place where even though, yes, we're in the suburbs and we have these houses, we still living with all black people, you know what I'm saying? So there's white people around us, you know what I'm saying? But there's this pocket of blackness right here and it's just different, you know, from the neighborhoods around us. It's the same, but it's different because it's very culturally black. So my whole existence, even in the suburbs, was very culturally black and all of us you know, had grandparents who lived in West Philly. So even though they didn't all live in different parts of West Philly, I actually spent probably socially, especially um, maybe like middle school on more time with my neighborhood neighbors with those kids in West Philadelphia than I did playing on the playground after school. Mm -hmm. It was wild. So um, I spent a lot of time in West Philly with my father's mother because that was my favorite person in the world. And I went to church in North Philly with my mother where her grand, where her parents lived mm -hmm. and um, where they lived was basically like the wire in Philadelphia. <laughs> um, my mother's uh, parents. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was 
crazier still because then it's like, you know, I'm going to this all girls private Catholic school, you know what I'm saying, in the suburbs, Monday through Friday, and then, you know, like um doing whatever on Saturday with my mom. And then on Sunday, you know, we go to like the worst parts of Philadelphia to go to church. And I mean like as a kid, I mean, even now, my mom like says that she still didn't know and, and I believe it because my mom is kind of naive, but like <laughs> When when we were kids, I would be like, why does grandma still live here? Like, I don't understand. Why do we still come to church here? I'd be like, you do know that these are crack houses, right? And my mom would be like, you, you don't know what you're talking about. I'd be like, that's a cap right there on the ground. And that's a cap and that's a cap and that's a cap and that's a needle. Like, you don't see this? <laughs> um, so it was weird because I feel like my whole life is this mix of like high and low. So like I've got this, you know, education, but I lived in the suburbs, but I was there with black people. And so like it was all black people struggles around us. And like then, um, you know, where my, my grandparents are living, you know, it's totally like, you know, varying degrees, you know, it's the 80s and the 90s. So it's ravaged, you know, by crack, you know what I'm saying? And everything like that. But then, you know, like my grandmother my father's mother was totally country. So she used to let me walk down 63rd street barefoot to the corner store. You know what I'm saying? To go get her cigarettes. <laughs> because back in the day, people did send children to go buy cigarettes. Yeah. Beer. yeah. And said, go on, baby, take a little change for mm-hmm. yourself. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Get yourself. Don't spend mm-hmm. more. And you better get the right brand and the right box. It can be, they want a soft pack or a hard pack. You better exactly. get the right. Yeah. Like you better get that cigarette order, right? Like mm-hmm. I want to, I want a pack of Capri Menthols, please, 100s, you know what I'm saying? And like, you know what I'm saying? You're going about your business, you know? And like, if you come back with some non-menthol cigarettes, little grandma, they ain't had no menthols, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. You know what I'm saying? So, um, like, I was allowed What's to What's up with black out? folks and menthol? I don't know. Because <laughs> Newport's a menthol, right? Yes, and cools, and we yeah. and, and the crazy thing is we spoke we smoke menthols at a disproportionate rate, and menthol disproportionately gives lung cancer. Hilarious, yeah. So, um, you know, like, um, but but it's wild because everything was this mix of high and low, and like hood and not hood, and like even my grandma, you know what I'm saying? Like she cooked for for rich white people. That's what she did for a living. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So like. You know, here she was, you know, like living in this apartment in West Philly, you know what I'm saying? And she she smoked and she drank beer and every now and then, every now and then, like she drank hard liquor like at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Never really like outside of Christmas by the time I was born. But apparently before I was born, uh, she was a raging alcoholic. So um, it's, it's funny how sometimes that be. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, 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 my understanding and the story that I have been told that I can recall is that um, around the time that like my her children started having children, she, she was basically told that like you need to get your life together. We love you, but you can't be drunk around babies. So like you need to get your life together, and she did. You know what I'm saying? So. Um, you know, here she was doing all this, but like, you know, she'd be making like all kinds of like wild shit in the kitchen, like, you know, cheesecake, you know, but like, it's like 1991 and she's making like mango cheesecake. You know okay. what I'm saying? Like people don't even really know, you know what I'm saying? Like people know what mangoes are, but do they? <laughs> like, yeah, people, like, people it's aren't really other than a flavor, you know what I'm saying? Right. It wasn't like they were like staples in the grocery store. 
So um, she was always like introducing us to new foods and everything like that. Um, and we used to watch cooking shows together. Okay. So what what I what I've always observed about you in particular, two things stick out. You're perceptive as hell, but you always have like these random facts. Like I like you and my cousin Wall are like good for having the most random. Like why do you know that type of information? So where did that come from? Were you just one of those kids who just liked to know just alternate stuff when you were little? I like, did, I like hmm? to read and I like to learn. So like my two favorite things as a kid were vocabulary still. Vocabulary. I like a new word. Um, and I like things like I just like to know how stuff works. Mm-hmm. So anything that is talking about how something works or analyzing something or critiquing something. I love to read it. And um, it's not as good as it used to be. But as a kid, I love Reader's Digest. And, you know, Reader's Digest is basically like, you know, we got like an excerpt of a book. We have, you know, a vocabulary. We got a bunch of interesting stories. We'll talk about science. We'll talk about culture. We'll talk about history. You know, it's just like kind of a hodgepodge. And I think Reader's Digest basically kind of like sums up why I like the things that I like and why they're so varied because I'm interested in how stuff works but there was this publication that like was like a bunch of everything that I liked it was like highlights for grown folks um okay so I guess the next question is gonna be we have an understanding of younger Christy you know you can go to the store barefoot to get cigarettes you know, going between grandparents' house or grandmother's house and your parents' house. So there's a, it seems like there might have been a little instability. Just just like a lot, there's more comfort, it sounds like, with your grandmother than with your mother. Oh, well, I don't actually really... Me and my mother don't really get along that well. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I would have not known because when I met you, I, I met you with your mother. And it seemed like y'all were like peas in the pod. Well, it's just, it's complicated. I mean, I love my mother very much, mm-hmm. but like... Um, the older I've gotten, the more trouble she seems to have with the fact that like I have boundaries and you need to respect them. And if you can't respect them, then, um, we can't be friends. And I think what I have always said about my mother is that I love her very much, but, um, I don't actually have any friends with my mother's personality. Um, and I would probably not be her friend if I met her on the street and, that's not because she's not a nice person or a good person. It's just that, like, um, personalities are just different. Is, yes, personalities. My mother is very much a respectable, church-going black woman, um, and I'm not. <laughs> and I just, I don't, I don't play the respectability politics. I don't actually give a fuck what anybody thinks about me. And I think that I get from my dad. Like, I mean, you know, so my 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 mom is a nurse. You know, and her dad was customs police. Sorry. It's all good. Um, but anyway, um, so my dad is a mechanic and he's totally blue collar. And I think that's something that's very Philly. Philly is a very blue collar city. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's probably why it's so segregated. Yes. And we, we don't miss a lot of words, you know, and it's not that we're not friendly. We just don't like mm, we don't suffer fools gladly. Y'all not, for, y'all not friendly. Um, <laughs> well, it's funny because. 
you know, back in the day, I don't think it's this way now, but back in the day, people used to say like New Yorkers were rude. But like even back in the day when New Yorkers had like the title, like or the reputation of being really rude, Philly, you know what I'm saying, on surveys was consistently rated higher than New York as far as rudeness is concerned. And I must admit, I mean, yeah, we're just we're, we're different. I, I, I really can't say what it is. But I feel like when I meet people who are from like Cleveland or Detroit or Pittsburgh, that we all have that same kind of, I don't really have time for this kind of vibe. And I chalk it up to Philadelphia is a huge factory town. So like before World War II, we actually made 80% of the country's textiles. And um, after World War II, it kind of fell off. Um, but, you know, until recently, um, we still had a fairly decent factory culture. And I think that like when men work shift work and women are also working either outside of the home, possibly in the same factories, or they are raising a lot of children and they having to keep a home and be on schedule with that man with his shift work with meals and shit like that. I just feel like that kind of creates a culture of people who like get it out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And like, you know what I'm saying? If you can't get it out fast, you know what I'm saying? Then like come back to me when you finally get it together because like we got shit to do around here. Mm-hmm. We got things to do. And so, um, we're just, we're brusque kind of people. And I think for people who don't, you know, if you're not used to that, like as just a culture, then like we seem rude and we're not, we're friendly. We're nice. You know what I'm saying? It's just that like, you know, what are you saying? Cause sugarcoated shit is still shit. So save the sugarcoating and just give it to me. Well, I'm not going to give you shit. That's just not, you know, well, well you know, that's, that's not the, what I would like to do. Um, <laughs> So, with all the sensibilities that you have, okay, you got a blue collar father. Obviously, a lot of people have blue collar fathers coming from Philadelphia. Oh, but I come from a totally dysfunctional family. Right. So, you know, I, you know, like I used to, I I would, I was supposed to be with my dad, but I was really with my grandmom on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And like at some point, I realized that he was kind of insulted because he would be like, "So where do you want to go this week?" And I'd be like, "I want to go to my grandmom's." And like there would be sometimes when he'd be like, "Okay, you're coming with me this week," and I'd be like, "But I." I, I don't I don't want to like in my mind I had planned to go to my grandmother's but like he had a different uh plan in his mind so um yeah my grandma was just my favorite person okay so explain to me how all this coalesced or congealed into high school Christy how how, how did how were you from transitioning from say elementary school because you, you you told me that you went to an all girls private school from first what, to kinder- 12th grade. First to 12th grade. Yeah, so I even got a certificate for it. How my diploma. How does how how does this play? Going to a private school, I'm assuming it's it's parochial. Parochial. Oh, Catholic. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Catholic. Very Catholic. Yeah, yeah. So how like, you know, going to the hood on Sundays for church, you know. Walking past crack houses, you know, going to your other grandmother, uh, going to your grandparents' house, for example, and, and seeing how things are going, hanging out where, where people, are, where, where things are active. We'll say that. <laughs> so you, you've seen a lot, and yet you're going to this like this this private school, which is obviously going to be a completely different culture and a completely different uh, ethnic demographic makeup. So how do all, does all this in your mind? How are you starting to put things together in terms of how the world works in where you fit in that world. 
Well, okay, so here's the thing. So my mother was always very um, active in, like, health, health, um, women's health, women's reproductive health, um, and community organizing activities around women's reproductive health and children's health. So um, when I was a kid, my mother used to belong to this organization called the Philadelphia Black Women's Health Project. And um, it was a local chapter of the National Black Women's Health Project, which was started by this woman named Billy Avery. And anybody who knows anything about old black feminists, you know what I'm saying, may know uh, something about Billy Avery. So the Philadelphia Black Women's Health Project was basically centered around reproductive rights. Now, my experience as a child was health fairs and, you know, like giving out information about like gynecological health and women's health and children's health. Um, and, um, you know, there was never any mention of abortion or anything like that, but it was really more just like, you know what I'm saying? Like your health and your fertility are important because, you know, like that, that, that controlling that helps you have better control over your life Mm -hmm. and health is something that is important because we as black women are out here dying, uh, at disproportionate rates of all kinds of diseases. So, um, you know, I would go to these health fairs and everything with her. And she had all of these friends who, you know, even though my mother was very much, you know, you know, kind of like a typical, like, you know, 80s, you know, 90s mom, you know, she was wearing what most other people were wearing, you know what I'm saying? Her hair was relaxed, you know, for a long time. You know, she also was hanging out with women who, you know, were wearing like dashikis and her husband were wearing dashikis. And, you know, there's a whole lot of like African prints going on. And like, you know, I think probably like 50 percent of my mother's friends had like, you know, that you, your, your mother named you, you know what I'm saying? Like Doris or Beverly or, you know what I'm saying? Something like that. But, you know, you uh, have a whole new African name now, you know what I'm saying? First and last, you know what I'm saying? And so it was like, we, I didn't grow up in the movement, but I grew up adjacent to people who have been in the movement in like the seventies. And, um, you know, they had transitioned into this, you know, kind of community, community organizing, you know, kind of, but like centered in Africanness kind of, uh, movement, you know, during the eighties and the nineties. And so it was kind of like, I grew up understanding that like the history that I'm being taught in school is totally incomplete, but this education that I'm getting is fan fucking fantastic. And it's going to put me ahead of the game. Um, and so it was crazy because like, but, but at the same time, I was taught at a school that on, on many levels was very Catholic, but it was run by the mercy nuns. Shout out to the mercy nuns. They gave me a wonderful moral, spiritual and intellectual education. So like, you know, it was, you know, college prep oriented academics, but the religion that we got, once you get past making all the sacraments in um, as a Catholic and you're in Catholic school. So once you get up to about sixth grade, the catechism part is over. So the part where they're really teaching you about what it means to be Catholic and what Catholics believe as far as like their theological perspective on the Trinity and, uh, uh, 
communion and all of these things, you know, the rites and rituals of the Catholic Church. All of that education is basically over by sixth grade when people make confirmation, because what they're doing is they're training you up from first to sixth grade through uh, the sacraments that you make. And, you know, confirmation is um, kind of analogous to uh, a bar mitzvah. So you're around 12 or 13 and they don't necessarily take it as far as the Jews and say that you're an adult. But, you know, the understanding is really that the implication is the same because at 12 or 13, you are asked to commit to being a Catholic for life. You know, so you're no longer a child in the eyes of the church. You are now a full-fledged adult spiritually who have committed to being, you know, a practicing member of the Catholic faith. So once you get past that point and you're actually still getting a religious education, at least the Catholic one, from my perspective um, or from my experience, what I know of the school that I went to and a lot of the schools, you know, that surrounded us, the, the education that you get, the religious education that you get from that point forward, from about seventh grade forward, is really about ethics mm-hmm. and morals and how you not as a good Catholic and not even necessarily as a good Christian, but how do you just be a good human being, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and what are you doing to make this world a better place? And so like, you know, when I was in high school, like I, like we, we, we took her church history. So, you know, you learned about not just the history of the Catholic church, but you learned about the history of Christianity up through, um, and including the reformation, um, you know, so we learned a lot about history and how history and uh, religion come together and how. Um, Which I've always been a fan of. Well, and how empire and religion come together. And even though they're not necessarily talking about empire, you know what I'm saying? You're you're learning this history. And, you know, at one point, Christians go from being persecuted, you know what I'm saying, to <laughs> Holy Roman Empire. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm a little confused here. You know what I'm saying? And they don't necessarily get into the specifics. They do, but they don't. They don't get into the political specifics of why. Well, of course not what wanted to be. So, so, so it's just, you know, a gloss over history, but still you're seeing the intersection of empire and religion. And I feel like as a black person who was raised by this mother who was providing this alternate black history for me. So, you know, we went to a black church, we got all that good black history programming, you know, and, you know, there was the African-American history museum and, you know, like my mom has taken me to, uh, there was a, a, a black theater company called freedom theater. You know, my mother is trying, doing her best to immerse me in all of this black art and black culture, you know, so I'm, I, I inherently knew without anybody having to tell me that like what you're getting over here is a whitewashed version, you know, and, and when you line up, you know, what you learn in the black history, you know, classes that your mama's giving you through church or by taking you to these museums or by taking you to these plays or by exposing you to, you know, these authors, because, you know, my mother read a lot. So there was always a lot of uh, books by uh, black authors in the house, which is why I have not seen the color purple because I read it. And I don't feel the need to watch it because I read it. And for all those who are listening who read it, you know what I'm saying? You don't have to co-sign me, but please understand, if you read it as a 12-year-old, you don't want to see it. You know what I'm saying? You just don't. The book is traumatic. So um, because there's all of this, you know, cultural stuff floating around in my life about blackness and like coffee table books on, you know, like black people and, you know, black history and everything like that, because there's all this floating around, I understood that like what you're getting at school is the white version. You know what I'm saying? And I think it's funny because I was actually conscious enough to when it came time to go to colleges, I just happened to visit Howard because my mother's friend's son got a soccer scholarship and she wanted my mother to go with her, you know, um, 
to accompany her on like parents weekend she was divorced and it was, i don't remember exactly what the story was but it was kind of like my husband gonna be there with his whatever and like i would like the moral support so i'm tagging along with them and i stepped on the howard's campus and i was like yeah this is home and it wasn't even like it was something like very yardy going on it wasn't like you know it was the nicest warmest day and like people were out like it was you know kind of brisk it was april it was windy you know what i'm saying people were really like moving back and forth to class it wasn't like i saw anybody chilling or there was any music playing but i was like oh this is home and so when i applied to howard everybody including a lot of the black girls that i went to high school with were like howard and i was like yes i'm tired of white people like i'm sick of them i'm absolutely sick of white people and i don't know what it was because I didn't, I mean, I, I, I lived in the suburbs. I didn't live in the city. A lot of the black girls who I went to, you know, school from, from grade school on up, a lot of them lived in the city, you know what I'm saying? Some of them lived in the suburbs, but a lot of them lived in the city. And like, I wasn't having their life experience. But so, like, so what does that mean by like them being in the city? I mean, like, you know, so like I lived in the suburbs and, you know, you would think, on paper, I'm living in the suburbs, I'm going to this all girls, all white private Catholic school. You would think that I had more in common with the white girls, you know, that I went to school with than maybe some of the other black girls. But the white girls that I went to school with, I was not feeling them. They were not really feeling me by and large, you know what I'm saying? Like I was not really friendly, you know what I'm saying? And there was something about me that was definitely super black, you know what I'm saying? Cause I was super aware and, um, I just, I, I wasn't, I wasn't for it. I don't, I, I, I can't even really say what it was. Like I just didn't blend in as well as the other black girls did. But you um, said their experience in the city, though. So what does that mean? I mean, well, like the white girls that I went to school with, they were very suburban, so they had no knowledge of the city at all. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, I don't think that they were very different culturally you know, it just seems like on paper, you would think the black girls who are coming from neighborhoods that are maybe, you know what I'm saying, more active or more hood, you know what I'm saying, might not blend in. You would you would think that maybe on paper, I might blend in better, gotcha. you know what I'm saying? But that was not the case, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I worked in a mall, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't necessarily a mall that a lot of girls, you know, that I went to school would frequent, you know, all the time. But like, you know, I'm having this very suburban, you know, I work in a mall, you know, that's like my, my, my weekend after school job, you know, and, you know, like I'm very much out in the county and everything like that. Like, I think I probably learned to drive before a lot of the girls, you know, who I went to high school with because they lived in the city. They could take the bus. My mother was tired of driving. So she was like, but you're going to drive yourself, get this license and, you know, get it together because I am not your chauffeur anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, please take yourself places. So like, you know, I had a car, I got a license, I worked at a mall, like I had all of this stuff that you might think it would be like, I might relate more to, you know, kind of the suburban white girls. And I I wasn't, you know, at all. We were not friends at all. I mean, I wasn't, I, I didn't like have no friends, but like, I didn't have a lot of friends. And a lot of them were actually scared of me, which is crazy. And I know this because we had senior retreat um, at the end of the year and people like wrote messages because like, you, you had like a journal where everybody like wrote something about you, sent it around people page after page of, I was so afraid of you until like just now. And, you know, I didn't even know who you were and you're, you're so smart. And I'm like, bitch, I've, been, I've known you since like seventh grade. You, what? Huh? I don't, I don't even understand. So, um, 
I just didn't really fit in with them. But I think I was also unapologetically black, you know, so like I was made a big deal about the fact that like, you know, well, okay, fine. You know, we're going to this Holocaust Museum, you know, for this field trip that we're going to for D.C. And we should all be sad. You know what I'm saying? But can we have a moment of silence for slavery? You know what I'm saying? Like, y'all act like Black History Month is like, you know what I'm saying? And then they were free and the niggas are happy. And like, that's that's not how it was. Like, you know, there was no um, there was no effort to address any kind of black struggle. Um, Seldom is. Yeah, seldom is. I mean that, but that's that. That's in. I mean, yeah, many schools. You know, so 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 it was like you know, let's 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 go watch Schindler's List. You know what I'm saying? But you know what I'm saying? Maybe don't go see Malcolm X. You know what I'm saying? Like like Schindler's List was an assignment. You got to go see this movie and write a paper on it. You know what I'm saying? But like Malcolm X came around and was like, mm, maybe not. You know what I'm saying? So it was like there was no there was no parody, and it was like you know there was all this focus. You know, not like super heavy, but like, you know, when it came time to talk about the worst atrocities and the worst that people could do, it was always like, oh, the Holocaust. And it was like slavery, owning people, you know what I'm saying? Rape every day. I'm just saying, like, you know, I understand that I'm this light because I'm a product of slavery. Like, let's let's not be for real. And you know what I'm saying? Sally Hemings was nobody's willing girlfriend. She was a fucking child. You know what I'm saying? So, like, you know, I feel like that kind of awareness of the fact that I was underrepresented in high school was very apparent to me. And so I was more than happy to escape to Howard. I can dig it. So Howard, how did being at Howard uh, affect and inform the woman you are now? Like, like what are the, what, like, like, think that like I was a kid who because I have all of these different things going on and all these influences in my life and I'm just this weird mix of like high and low and black and you know pop culture really because I I can't even say white you know what I'm saying like you know like that article um that the girl was talking about about the blurred article like you know it just you are not unusual if you like Star Wars because it is like the most successful movie franchise ever. Like people of color who like Star Wars pipe down. You know what I'm saying? The rest of the world is on the same page as you. You know what I'm saying? They feel the same way in Africa. They feel the same way in Asia. You know what I'm saying? Like totally pipe down. You know what I'm saying? Just because, you know what I'm saying? You are from, you know what I'm saying? Some hood somewhere and you ain't got a problem admitting you like Star Wars don't mean nothing because all your nigga neighbors have seen the movies too. So, I mean, like chillax. Um, so it's kind of like Howard confirmed to me that like black people, there are lots of black people who ski, you know what I'm saying, or scuba dive or know how to swim just in general or like, you know, like to read or like Seinfeld, you know what I'm saying? Because I think that growing up and even looking back, it wasn't so much that people didn't watch these things. Seinfeld, you know what I'm saying, was the most watched TV show, you know what I'm saying, in this country, I think, you know, like At pretty much point, the yeah. whole country t- tuned in to watch that bullshit ass finale like i mean black people were watching the shit we just wasn't talking about watching it you know what i'm saying we was all home watching seinfeld we just wasn't talking about it and i think i felt weird because i didn't mind talking about the things that i was into that i like that were different 
you know, and those were things that weren't necessarily considered to be culturally black. And so those were things that, you know, um, a lot of a lot of the black people around me weren't, you know, admitting to, you know, ex, you know, liking these things or, you know, watching these things or, you know, reading these things or whatever the case may be. But um, so Howard kind of confirmed for me that like, no, no, but you're not strange. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody out there likes this, you know what I'm saying? Because it's just good, you know, and it's just that, you know, people may not want to admit that because it feels like you shouldn't because it's unfamiliar. Or maybe I think, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I think maybe there's a lot of things that black people like that we don't necessarily want to openly admit because it feels inaccessible to us. I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, that, oh, do black people do this? I think that, you know, a lot of black people, you know, do do that. Or if they had the opportunity, they would do it. It's just that it's so inaccessible to us that, you know, why bother? Yeah, there's I think that's definitely a a real factor. I can also uh, I also think that when you think about it, we are very commonly upset easily when it comes to being stereotyped as being monolithic, but the irony is that we are often monolithic when we are interacting with each other. So it's kind of like one of those things like, oh, like, oh, you do that? Oh, you listen to that? Blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, it's like, okay, have you listened to it? Do you know that this shit is awesome? Or, you know, are you just saying that because that's what you think you're supposed to say? I think the iPod has probably really revolutionized the way people of color in general um, are able to be in the world. And I say that because, um, even though I personally don't do not and have never owned an iPod, um, it's a device, it's pretty ubiquitous. And the thing about it is you can buy any song, you know? And so like, because you can buy any song, I think that if you look at the average, you know, person of color, whether they be urban or suburban, whether they be white, black, Asian, you know, and, and you know, South Asian, East Asian, whatever. I think that you would be shocked at what is on people's iPods, because when you can just go in and build your own collection and you can just buy things one song at a time, you don't even have to commit to an album. It's the curating. Yeah. I think that, yeah. Like I think that you, when you can curate your own taste down to just the song, you know, it's so much different than we were kids and you had to commit to like a whole tape or a CD. And mm-hmm. like, if you were lucky, like the song you like got released on single and maybe there was like, you know, an accompanying two or three songs on it, you know, like B sides, you know, that like were good, but you know, like maybe, you know, like, you know, kind of obscure or something that would be like for some people now considered deep in the crates. Like, I think that if you look at the average person's iPod, you would be shocked to find how many genres are on people's iPods, no matter what their origin is, no matter how they identify. And I think that, you know, Howard to me was like the iPod is, you know, today was like, oh, well, of course there's these black people that are interested in all these things that aren't necessarily culturally black. And I think because Howard is, you know, mostly black, we have the safety of not feeling like somebody's gonna, you know, like take our black car from us. Cause it's like, well, we all black here. So clearly, you know what I'm saying? If you come to Howard, you are committed to your blackness. So like, <laughs> we're not, we're not mad. You know what I'm saying? That like, you know what I'm saying? You are totally into like Star Trek 
or, you know what I'm saying, that like you totally are like, you know, a classical music nut. Like we not mad cause like you came here so clearly you're committed to your blackness. Um, so I, that I feel like Howard was a place that really affirmed my blackness and it was a place where I could really just kind of like be and breathe for a minute and not have to worry about being black or being a representative or anything like that. I could just be me. Word. So I'll say for me, when it comes to Howard, I'll say that being at HU actually reopened the doors for me as far as music is concerned. Because in my high school years, I did start to become very monolithic. It was pretty much in high school, it was hip hop or R&B. And the irony was, I was raised um, around music when it comes to R&B that dated back to the 50s, 50s, 60s, 70s, like for real, like music, R&B. So Sam Cooke, um, you know, whoever, Luther Vandross, Charday, Cameo, but you go all the way back to like, you know, like Fast Domino, whatever. All that stuff was familiar to me because I, my stepfather would play the oldies but goodies. And my father was always playing like the smooth current R&B, you know? Oh. So it was just like, you know, whatever the the the, the, the current R&B was in the, in the 70s and the 80s into the 90s, my father had it. So between these two men, um, I had an appreciation for what I considered to be real R&B music, you know, not to shade like what's out now. So going back to, uh, going back to what I was saying at Howard, um, I remember Julia, who uh, was in the movie Notorious, used to just randomly go around singing Alanis Morissette, Isn't It Ironic? And her singing that, I was like, I like the lyrics to it. I was like, because like to me, like, you know, poetry and lyrics and bars and all that, I like the lyrics to it. And then she put me on the porter set, like, yo, doesn't this sound crazy? Like, yo, this is, I was like, oh, like, you know what I'm saying? And then like it got into Fiona Apple. So between Alanis Morissette, Fiona Apple and Porter's Head, it completely reopened the doors of music for me. So at this point, at this stage of my life, I listen to anything and everything as long as it sounds good to me. I would have to agree. Now, it's funny because in high school, I my friend Kate put me on to um, Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, and I really liked that. Um, but it wasn't like, like she, I had tapes that she made for me, you know, so like I had it, but then you know, yeah, like Alanis Morissette came out and Fiona Apple came out. And I feel like I don't even know how I think Dio put me on to Fiona Apple, but I don't even know how I came across Alanis Morissette. But I think that musically, I was kind of always open because, um, you know, I went to school. But the 80s, though, people. that's what's so, crazy about it. Like the 80s, like I was, I mean, like if there were no barriers in the 80s. Wh- and That's what made it crazy. I used to hate it in the nineties when people were like, "Oh, you you listen to like you know I be you be in some store singing like a Duran Duran song." People were like, "Oh, you know that song?" And be like, "Nigga, please, I don't act like you weren't born before black radio stations were a thing. Like you were born in the seventies, like I was, and I know you remember that we was all listening to the same thing. Culture Club, Wham, 80s. all that stuff, exactly. yeah." Exactly. And I mean, don't pretend if you didn't have cable, if you were watching MTV, those was the videos we were watching. Notes, yep. that's all that was on. They would not so play like, any black music on, on MTV. Yeah. Right, exactly. So it's like, you know, that may be what you, you may like, you know what I'm saying, hip hop, you know what I'm saying? But, but don't, and you may like R&B, but don't front 
like just straight up and down American pop music is not what we grew up on because we grew up on that shit. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And the reality is we can sing along to a lot of things, even now that, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't give me the side eye. We all know this song. And the reality is it's just a great fucking song. Yeah. So. So, yeah, music. Um, and then at Howard, when um, Luxury Rap came out with uh, the advent of Hove, I actually just stopped listening to um, rap altogether. And I started listening to um, a lot of rock. And so I was like, you know, listening to the Foo Fighters and um, I'm trying to think. Foo Fighters. Nine Inch Nails is probably all around that time. Um, uh, Rage Against the Machine. Like anything that was kind of like alternative, you know, like me, me and T. Uh, T. Rich, we share love for DC 101. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So like Smashing Pumpkins, like anything that was like 90s alt rock, you know what I'm saying? I was totally there for it, you know? So, That's what's up. Um, and the irony was after that happened, man, I, I went into this this phase that lasted for years where I would spend like almost all my money on just music. I would go to like the Best Buy in Pentagon City and I would mm-hmm. buy just racks of C- just like CDs on top of CDs. And just well, be unwrapping them and reading the liner notes and stuff like that it was crazy. I'm a radio girl, always have been. Yeah. But I think that's also because um, I didn't have a TV in college. Um, and so I, in my house, like in my room, um, whether I was in a dorm or an apartment, like I listened to, um, I started listening to a lot of NPR. Um, like, not. Because I was held captive by my mother's boyfriend. <laughs> um, I started listening to NPR on my own. And so, like, I would actually just listen to a lot of talk radio and then a lot of, you know, just whatever was on the radio radio. Okay. So, quick question. How did the formation of friendships change and evolve from, say, high school into college and beyond. How did how did your being reaffirmed as a, as a, as being black and you, you understand that you're you're not by yourself? Like how did that affect how you formed friendships? Because it's and like the Chrissy I've known seems like it's like if somebody doesn't like me, I'm not going to go out of my way to make them like me. I mean, really, it hasn't changed. I've been this way my whole life. Either you like me or you don't. Either I like you or I don't. And um usually I find myself not liking people more than I like them. But I find that like, um, I think that's because what I've come to learn as an adult, but it's always been true about me is that I'm very not um, flexible with my boundaries. Um, And I don't like people who trample on other people's boundaries. And so usually the problems that I've had with people are more of a, it's not that I don't like you, like you've done something to me. It's more like you just not for me. Mm. And I see this and I would rather not have a lot of interaction with you more than I have to, because the reality is you will do something that will make me, really not like you like we will actually you'll do something like that will affect me that will make me not like you which will confirm this feeling that you're giving off of me which will make me not like you even more so i would rather we just stay away from each other because we're not for each other 
But I think that that is also something that I got from my dad. Like my dad told me when I was young, like you are weird and you are not for everybody. And like, you should just learn to deal with that because everybody ain't for you either. And like that really stuck with me. Um, Did that, that hurt your feelings for- when he said that? No, because I knew that the part, the, the, the part that made it okay was that I knew everybody wasn't for me. And mm-hmm. so if everybody not for me, okay, that makes sense that I wouldn't be for everybody. And like probably a lot of those people that like aren't for me, I'm not for them either. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So like it ter- totally didn't hurt my feelings because like I think, you know, as dysfunctional as they are um, <clears throat> and as many bad behaviors as um, I've had to unlearn um, from my parents, the one thing that they were both really good at um, is when they talked to me, they were both really honest about life. You know, like life is shitty. <laughs> you know, like I, 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 and I remember being in a car with my dad and being like, I don't even remember what we were talking about because it was a long time ago when I was young. And I was like, well, that's not fair. You didn't ask me. And like, we were at a red light and he looked at me and he was like, oh, so yeah, people get votes in democracies. He was like, this is not a democracy. He was like, this is a friendly dictatorship that could totally turn on you at any moment. And I was like, oh, okay, right. I get that. That makes sense. I totally get that. And like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, life isn't fair. You know what I'm saying? This is not a democracy. This family situation we got going on here, you're not going to vote. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we ask you because it's nice. You know what I'm saying? And, and we, there's that flexibility for us to actually care about what it is that you want. But a lot of times, no, nah, bitch, like you're going to go along with this program. And so like because they kept it very like honest with me um, about, you know, how you interact with the world and like how life can be. I was totally not offended by that. It, and it made sense. You know, when, when things don't make sense, that's when I'm like, mm. but you know, if it makes sense, I'm like, well, you know, I can go for that. I mean, I like it, but it's what it is. Okay. True. So you finish up at Howard. What did you graduate from Howard with, by the way? Um, I finally, <laughs> after a long time, managed to get a bachelor's in of arts with a concentration in art history. Okay. Oh, so you probably had a lot of Dobar classes then. Oh, I did. I loved Dr. Dobar. Yeah, that was one of my favorite professors while I was at Howard. Um, well, he right. was not that. He's a person, not a thing. So he was one of my favorite professors. Um, and also because he would take the history, the art history and the religious history, and he would he would intersect those which was right because he was super catholic oh well it makes sense because he's where he's from so yeah 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 the creole boy so next question um you wound up hitting a speed bump as an adult in terms of starting to have health my body is broken (laughs) no I'm, i'm fucking broken let's let's call it what it is okay like you know Health issues is nice. I spent most of my 20s being a professional patient because for the longest time, they didn't know what was wrong with me. So I've got, so I used to vomit a lot and, you know, it was just like inconvenient at first. And then it was like, oh, this is concerning. And then it was like, oh, well, this is just downright debilitating. And like, you know, you can't go anywhere or do anything. So um, I actually, um, 
I haven't eaten successfully carefree, worry-free in a restaurant since probably like 2003 or four. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after a long winding road of doctors and diagnosis and surgeries and all kinds of shit going wrong, they finally figured out that I'm allergic to life. So, um, I'm literally allergic to life. So I'm allergic to the heat and I'm allergic to the cold, which really means that I'm just allergic to changes in my core body temperature. Um, And I am allergic to all kinds of dust and pollen and um, animals that, you know, live in water. And um, I can eat safely about 10 things. And uh, right now, none of those things are appealing to me. So I'm eating things that technically aren't safe. I've got a nice rash all over my whole body and I got hives, you know, but, you know, I'm living. I'm, 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 I'm getting enough calories to survive. That's what's up. So, and I actually have an appointment coming up. So um, I'm probably going to go collect another diagnosis. So um, just by symptom, um, I know that I have uh, probably a mast cell disorder going on and I've been trying to ignore that for a long time. But now that I'm a lot more active with being in school and being active in school, like doing student activities and stuff like that and just having a social life, um, my body is just um, under a lot more physical stress. Good, you know, because I'm having a good time and I'm using my brain and I find it all to be rewarding, but bad because I'm broken as fuck. <laughs> and um, rest is really super important to me. Um, so are in my environmental conditions. So um, I will hopefully, um, I'm going in for some testing and um, what I'm looking for is less a diagnosis and I'm hoping more to just be able to be put on a medication that um, will stabilize me. So cross our fingers. Uh, Prayer for you, of course. Um, Very quickly, I have to ask this question. Um, My entire life, pretty much, um, I've been a healthy person. Mm -hmm. And I've never really had any like major like issues with being sick. Like I rarely got sick as a kid. Um, in fact, I never even had chicken pox. So, you know what I'm saying? It's like, Oh dude, please go get vaccinated. Yeah. Well, you know, chicken pox will kill an adult. It can. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, it's just one of those things like I I never been sick or whatever. So until you actually get sick or whatever, it can, it, it kind of affects you. So going from just doing what you do as an, as a human being, just living your life to all of a sudden, like. Something's going on with my body. I know something's going on, but the doctors aren't giving you the information you need to, one, counteract what's happening with your body or to be able to address it. But two, psychologically, it can it can mess with you because it's like, okay, I know when I, w- I got sick in 2015. And when I mean I got sick, I got really sick in 2015 to the point like I didn't know whether or not I was checking out or not because it was just so many random things were happening and they had no order or or they didn't make sense. None of it was connected to anything mm-hmm. as far as what I saw. So it's just like, you know, all these things were happening and they were getting progressively worse. And if I went to like the the ER, I'm like your your blood pressure's fine. Your blood work is fine. 
Like everything, your heart rate is, everything is, everything is fine. Like, dude, I don't feel fine. I would not come here if I felt fine. I hate hospitals. So like the fact that I'm here, I'm not fine. So to go through that, you said for your 20s, how did that affect you as, 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 as did that change, you know, like you, you, did that affect how you, how you look at the, the healthcare system? Like, how did that affect you? Well, um, so there's a couple of things at play. Um, it made me realize how broken our healthcare system is because the reality is um, most doctors don't actually know really on a lot of levels what they're doing. Now, I'm not saying that doctors are ignorant. I'm not saying that, you know, they haven't been well trained. But what I am saying is that studies have shown that doctors stop absorbing information about the practice of medicine the day they graduate from medical school. And so I was walking into doctor's office with, you know, all of these symptoms and, you know, because they weren't up on the research, because they weren't up on the literature, I found myself, especially once I got my Crohn's diagnosis, having to school other people. And um, so several I have Crohn's disease, which um, technically is a rare disease, which means less than 2% of the population, at least in America, has it. I also have a, a, a condition called cyclic vomiting syndrome, which technically is a symptom of my anaphylaxis, but um, it is also a rare thing. So how my, my anaphylaxis manifests itself, even when I'm shocked, when I'm in shock is different from the way many people do. Now, it's not unusual and it's not necessarily rare, but it's something that because it's not what doctors have been trained to come to expect, it's not something that they can readily identify. So even now I can go into the hospital now that I have all my diagnosis and I have been to the hospital a couple of times and I'm vomiting and I'm like, I need pain medication and I need Benadryl. And they're like, yeah, but you need like some kind of anti-emetic. And I'm like, no, this is an allergic reaction. I need Benadryl. That's what's going to stop the vomiting. But I'm also in a lot of pain and that's not going to go away. So you're going to have to give me pain medication or it will allow the vomiting to possibly re-trigger and persist, you know, and all of this is in my file, but I still have to tell people this. But before I had any diagnosis, I would show up in the hospital, I would be vomiting, I'd be there with my mom. And, you know, this was in the middle of what we know now um, is, you know, a raging opiate epidemic. So I would show up at the hospital legit sick with my mom until like, you know, a lot of the times looking like, oh my God, I think she's gonna fucking die. And they're treating me like I'm just another drug seeking black woman, you know what I'm saying? In there trying to get free hospital drugs. And I'm like, no, I'm broken. And then once we get past the, you know, oh, you're not drug seeking and we've done a drug test on you and you've come back clean and we haven't told you we've done a drug test on you, but we know that we've done a drug test on you and you know that we've done a drug test on you. Um, you know, it'll come back and it's like, oh, well, shit, you really are fucked up. You know what I'm saying? But then we can't find anything wrong with you. So clearly it must all be in your head. Um, and once I got the Crohn's diagnosis, I actually had like a better kind of like foothold, you know, because people couldn't, you know, dismiss my symptoms or what mm -hmm. was going on with me as crazy. And even though they still couldn't, you know, figure out why I was vomiting, you know, it's like, well, she is broken. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're not going to say that she's a drug addict, but we are going to say that maybe you should go for a psych consult. Um, so for the longest time, it was, you know, oh, maybe you're a little crazy. Maybe you need to see a shrink. Maybe this is, you know, has some kind of emotional connection. I was like, no, nah, 
I'm broken. You know what I'm saying? And like, I don't find any of this convenient. I'm not attention seeking. Like all of this shit is totally inconvenient for my life. It makes me angry. And what makes me even angrier is the fact that y'all can't get this shit together. And like, fine, don't tell me what's wrong with me because you can't figure it out. But don't tell me I'm crazy because that I'm not. You know what I'm saying? So I actually, um, for a wide variety of reasons, but one of them was because I was tired of people telling me I was crazy. I actually started going to therapy because I was like, no, what I am going to come in here with is, a, a, is telling you that, no, I got a therapist. I got a clean psych bill of health. So let's get back to what's actually physically wrong with me. And it's so crazy because even uh, when I got my allergy diagnosis, I walked into the doctor's office and I was like, you know, I've been eating a lot of nuts um, because I had gone paleo because like I knew just from experience that grains, wheat, corn, rice, all of that shit was like totally wreaking havoc on my system. And so when I stopped eating it, I was doing better. And when I started uh, eating paleo, I was doing better. But again, it's a lot of nuts and everything Mm -hmm. like that. So I had hives. Like I woke up one morning and I realized like I got a hive like that went from like the middle of my stomach on my left side all the way around my back um, to like the middle of my back right over my kidney. And I was like, yeah, that's a fucking giant hive. Like that's a problem. So I go to the doctor and he was like, yeah, that is a hive. And I was like, I think I'm allergic to nuts. He was like, oh, you're probably not. I was like, mm, but I think I am. He was like, oh, you're probably not. But, you know, I'll, 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 I'll do the test. And he was like, so you want to do a skin test? I was like, absolutely not. Because, like, I have eczema and all kinds of issues. And right now I got really clear skin going on. And what you're not going to do is, you know, put a bunch of needles in my arm trying to figure out what I'm allergic to and inflame me. Because, like, that will take forever to clear up. And I just don't have time for that. So um, he took blood and my allergy work came back and it was like, oh, right. See, I told you I was allergic to nuts. And he was like, oh, I guess you are. And it turned out that I was allergic to a lot of things, like uh, everything. So, um, you know, even then, you know, I walk into an office and I say, hey, I think I got this going on. And the doctor like just outright dismisses me. And then when I get my allergy, you know, uh, results back and I tell him that I've been having, you know, symptoms that are clearly, you know what I'm saying? I know now, you know, but, you know, then I'm telling him all these symptoms. Well, I mean, they're, they're like on the anaphylaxis checklist. But I was like, do you think I could get an EpiPen? And he was like, nah, you're fine. Just keep Benadryl handy. Really? Really? I, I, I can't. So um, that even in and of itself was a show. And only because I joined a bunch of support groups on Facebook that I actually find the allergist that I have now. And he was one of the first doctors I've ever had who was like, so I just need you to tell me what's wrong with you. I need you to tell me what are your symptoms. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. He was like, because ultimately, you know you best. That is you one of the most that. reassuring things you can find when a doctor actually sits down and acts like they're not in a rush. Oh, when they start asking I, questions. The allergist I have, I love him. He takes notes while I'm talking and he doesn't just take notes, but he takes notes in different color pins and he highlights and he underlines. And like he's constantly looking back at my chart to see like, oh, well, this improved. And I see that you had this, you know, like he remembers me, you know, and I know it's not just because, you know, he's gone over my chart, you know, 15 minutes before I walked in the door. But he actually like knows me. He remembers me. He knows all the things that I have going on, you know. And so like um, it was, you know, it's refreshing. So what I can say about the healthcare system is that um Everything that you read or suspect is true. The healthcare we get is inherently racist. And I say that because the reality is 
unconscious bias is a thing. You know, they've I, I have gone into a hospital and said, I'm in kidney failure and had a nurse tell me you couldn't be in kidney failure. You know, you would be in a lot of pain. I said, I am in a lot of pain. She said, we well, don't act like you're in pain. I said, like, I'm not going like I, I got to keep my wits about me because I got to make sure y'all actually give me the care I need. I don't have the time or the energy, you know what I'm saying, to be as sick as you want me to be because I'm trying to get treated so I don't get sicker. You know, I've had nurses tell me I couldn't possibly be allergic to medication. Um, I've, you know, had, you know, people um, touch me, you know, like I'm in pain and you're touching me like you don't actually think that like I'm in pain because if you did, you certainly wouldn't be touching me like that. And, you know, or just the fact that I walk into a hospital, I say, please look at my notes, look at my record. I'm a patient of this health system. You need to look at my record. This is what's going on with me. This is the protocol on file for me and been told for hours, you know what I'm saying? Despite the fact that I have a protocol in the system from a specialist, been told, nope, sorry, we're not going to do that for you. We don't think that that's the best thing for you because you, you know, because it's it, it, it's easier for them to assume that I'm drug seeking than it is to assume that this is an actual, you know, like issue that I have. And like you need to write, you know, you need to give me these drugs and you need to give me these fluids so that I can get out here and go on about my business. Like, you know, it is racist. You know, unconscious bias is real. You know, and the reality is, you know, studies have shown that doctors doctors, people who are currently in medical school, people who have recently graduated from medical school, people who have been practicing medicine for a long time, think that black people don't feel pain as much as other people, think that our skin is more Im more, more impermeable to being injured by like needles or scalpels than other people. You know, like these are things that trained medical professionals think. And they treat you like that. And the other thing is that it's all about the money. You know, they may be nonprofits, hospitals, but they are run on a for-profit model. And it's about money. Now, to be fair, you know, most hospitals run a lean budget. But the reality is they run such a lean budget because they pay their executives so much money. So it's not even your doctor who's raping you. You know what I'm saying? It's the president of the hospital. You know what I'm saying? That's raping you. It's the shareholders, you know, of these corporations that are, you know, like raping you because they're getting the return on their profits. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, one of the things that I've really had to, you know, question is why is healthcare for profit? Why are things that people need for profit? Why are we allowed to profit on the suffering of other people, because ultimately that's what we're saying is okay. Same thing when with the prison and justice healthcare. system. Right. Why, why are we allowed to profit from other people's pain and suffering? You know, and, 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 and not only that, but these are things that, you know, a lot of people like to think that this is an individual health issue, but really these are public health concerns because when you have whole populations, whole demographics, whole large sections of the population who aren't receiving adequate health care because they're black or brown. You know, like I um, recently was sitting with a friend. She had a gynecologist. The, 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 the doctor who delivered her baby is East Indian and she is a black woman, but she also holds a bachelor's degree in sociology from Boston College. 
You know what I'm saying? That is no small feat. And that means that you can't be stupid because like you can't be stupid and get into Boston College and you certainly can't be stupid and graduate from Boston College. You may be dumb in life. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But like, and you may have parents, there there may be a few who bought their way in, but for the most part, the Catholics do tend to stick to, we like to produce, you know what I'm saying? Actual, like, you know, scholars. And so like, you know, BC is, you know what I'm saying? A top tier institution. And she goes in there and the doctor says, you know, your blood pressure is a little high. So, you know, no fried chicken. <laughs> I got the fuck up and walked the fuck out. Bitch, are you crazy? Have you looked? Like, but, but people think that's okay to say to people. And she didn't know what to say. She was so caught off guard by it. You know what I'm saying? And she just let it that's slide. How, that's how like that, that, you know that's how that shit hits you. Things are so crazy now. Like the, the straight up just outrageous shit that we were used to catches off all because it catches us off guard now. Cause there's so much dog whistling and subtlety and, right. and, and right. sneaky shit with the racism now is it's, it's way more subversive and way more, you know, subtle and, you know. Exactly. And I mean, so like, you know, I, I think that, you know, I learned that like, um, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of take me as I am kind of person. And I, I went never got this, that about you. And so I went through this phase where, you know, even though I was really because I was really sick, you know what I'm saying? And like, I just needed something for me. I was wearing like all kinds of colorful wigs and, you know, I remember like, I that firmly settled into glitter. I glitter. I remember I was just about to say glitter. And I realized that like, even though that shit made me feel better, I actually couldn't go to doctor's appointments like that because I couldn't have a conversation with them. Like they couldn't look at me in a purple wig and think that they could have a serious conversation with me. And it's like, I look no different. I'm no different than I was the last time I saw you. But mm-hmm. for some reason, you don't seem to be computing the words that are coming out of my mouth like like they're intelligent or logical or rational. Um And so like I learned that like sometimes I have to, you know, like, actually care about how other people perceive me when I go in to do medical stuff because if not you know people will even if even if they all the cues you're giving should be you should be treating me one way they just can't seem to help themselves a lot of times um and another thing that I had to learn how to do is really advocate for myself because the reality is like I said you know a lot of doctors aren't up on the most recent research and so I spent a lot of time Uh, yeah and like um at one point in time um because they kept wanting me to have the surgery that I didn't want to have done and the surgeon was basically kind of trying like she was saying basically to my PCP that I was non-compliant and I actually had to like I couldn't even just do a standard you know like get deep into the weeds on a google scholar search like I literally had to go to Howard Med School and go to their library and sit down and I pulled out probably like three or four inches worth of uh, research journal articles and stuff. And I went through and I highlighted all the stuff that was relevant to my case. And I, you know, went into into this, you know, meeting between me, the surgeon and the PCP. And I sat down a stack of papers and was like, so this is the reason why I will not be having this surgery and why I will not be entertaining this question again and why I will not be in your care so you can leave. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know what I'm saying? She, you know, we summed up that part of the, finished up that part of the conversation and she left. And my doctor basically had to kind of like take a step back. And realize, oh, you're not like WebMD research kind of girl. Like, 
you actually really do know what you're talking about. Like, I thought maybe you knew what you were talking about before, but like, I wasn't really sure because, you know, everybody like to be on the WebMD or, you know, see what's online. Nah, I'm not a hypochondriac. I know there's something wrong with me. And, you know, I know that these are the reasons why I'm not going to have this surgery. Um, and, you know, my gut was telling me, you know, it was my gut that was really it was my gut based on my experience that was telling me I don't want to have the surgery because the long story short is they suggest that I have a surgery. And I did. And the, when I had the surgery, I ended up septic in the hospital and having to have emergency surgery um, by midnight the night after my first surgery. And then I ended up going septic and having to have emergency surgery six months later. And then they performed that surgery wrong. So I had to have surgery again the next day. So with one planned surgery that ended up in three emergency surgeries and two fuck ups, the fuck up was the first time they gave me surgery. They should have never touched me. Um, and then all of the subsequent surgeries, you know, um, it was kind of like, yeah, no, I'm over this. So um, but after that point, you know, my PCP, you know, was able to say, um, I will respect whatever decision it is that you make. And so, you know, it took me a long time to, you know, get a doctor to be able to respect me. Um, and from from that point forward, once I knew that, like, no, you're not crazy. You know what I'm saying? These people are just straight up and down disrespectful. I will not stay with a doctor that I find disrespectful. Um, and I won't tolerate anybody giving me any kind of health care that I don't like. I mean, you know, even before this, you know, the, the point with the PCP and, you know, that kind of confrontation with those doctors, I am famous for telling a nurse, nope, don't you touch me again. Go get another one because, nope, not you. Not today. Um, and, you know, when it comes to blood draws, you got three sticks. You know what I'm saying? And like, if you can't get it in three sticks, then like nobody gets to try again unless I'm a die. And then if I'm a die, then you better find you a phlebotomist because my veins are difficult and I'm not going through this because this that shit hurts. It's painful. You know what I'm saying? And not only that, but like you're not getting nothing done. You know what I'm saying? So why should I suffer? Because you can't get it together. Go find somebody who can. <laughs> Well, I mean, because there's always somebody who can. Do oh no, I, I can dig it. I, I, no, I can dig it. I, I had a funny flashback of my own. Uh, so we're getting towards the end of the interview, but I do want to ask two questions. But I gotta, I gotta ask you to pick between the two. So okay. whichever one you want to go with. Uh, you want to go with the divinity school, or do you want to go with the polyamory? I'll go with divinity school. Okay. Uh. And I think it's interesting in having this this conversation with you in terms of like the, the journey you took. It seems more common sense as to why you might have taken this. Although you obviously have reasons to, to why you went to divinity school. So I'll just ask the question. What what made you decide to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go back to school. You know what? I'll go back for divinity school. What made you make that decision? So I was up late one night because I am an insomniac. And I was watching uh, this documentary series on Showtime called Time of Death. And it followed terminally ill people in the last uh, weeks and months of their lives. Um, and actually, they didn't capture the death. They didn't film the deaths, but they, you know, showed the immediate, you know, after, um, after the person has died and everything like that. And... Um, 
I was just starting to really get healthier and my health was really just starting to get stable, even though I didn't have my allergy diagnosis, like I had made these dietary changes. And so I was getting healthier and I was more stable. I was able to kind of like go out in the world and do a little bit more. I wasn't, you know, housebound, you know, a hundred percent anymore. And so not that I was ever like ever not able to leave my house, but like, you know, going to the grocery store, it would be like, I come back and I just smelling the food in the grocery store, I'd be vomiting. So like, you know, being able to go out and not come home vomiting or, you know, not feel like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm going to be super sick and I'm going to need to like really rest tomorrow or not be able to do anything for a couple of days. I started thinking about um, what I wanted to do, you know, to go back to work. And so I have this degree in art history and I've, you know, worked in, you know, museums and nonprofits. Um, but I also am a certified jeweler gemologist and um, I have trained to uh, design and manufacture jewelry both by hand and in kind of like a factory setting as far as like casting and everything like that is concerned. When's the last time you opened up Rhino just very quickly? When's the last time you've used Rhino? Probably like 18 months ago. Okay, I'm gonna need you to get back on that. You get back on Rhino, I'm gonna get back with the sketchbook. How about that? I was actually just thinking that I do want to start playing around with it because I need a creative outlet that's Mm -hmm. not really messy because like, you know, too many books laying around here to be painting and shit. So I was thinking about like, I need to start playing around with that again, because that would be fun. So, um, you know, I didn't want to go back to jewelry design. Um, I just, my heart wasn't in it. And I was like, you know, so I'm up late at night and I'm watching this documentary and, you know, I'm watching the families and the people. And it's funny because there were no chaplains in the documentary There were just doctors and there were doctors talking about death and, you know, some of them were hospice doctors and talking about why they had chosen to work in hospice and everything like that. And some of them were oncologists. And so even though they're not on hospice, if you're an oncologist, you definitely see your fair share of patients um, who die, you know, from, you know, while they're in your care. And so I was like, I relate to this. Like, I understand I don't understand what it's like to be dying, but I understand what it's like to be really sick. And I feel like, you know, the whole time that I was really sick, people couldn't really relate to me. People didn't really know how to talk to me. Like we don't, we don't have the language, you know, to deal with death or dying. And to me, that also translated into not having the language um, to really talk about anything other than cancer. You know, we can talk about cancer in Western society because you either win or lose. You know what I'm saying? But we don't really have the language you know, or, or know how to support people who are having long protracted chronic, you know, illnesses, you know, whether they be, um, what they call it, uh, whether they, you know, be, you know, something where your, your health is, you know, kind of continually on, you know, the decline or whether it's just, you know, just a chronic state of stable fucked upness, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like, we don't really have the language for that. And while I was watching this documentary, I was like, I want to do that. I want to like work with dying people. And so like I pulled out my phone and I did a little like, you know, research and I was like, chaplain. Okay. I like that. 
I really think that I would be good at that. Like, I think that I would be really good at trying to, you know, help comfort people and help them coordinate services because chaplains do a wide variety of things. They're kind of like a cross between, yes, we do the spiritual stuff, but they're also kind of like they they do a lot of social worker type stuff where they help people, you know, organize um, in the hospice situation, burials or care or, you know, like all kinds of things. Basically, anything that the other people don't do, chaplains help you pull together. Um, And so I was like, I would be really good at this, and and I want to try this. So I looked up what you had to do to do it, and it was like, okay, divinity school. And it was like, you know, well, you know, I had religious education from first to 12th grade. And, you know, um, even when, um, when I went to school in California, one of the things that I, you know, I set a personal goal for myself while I was out there. And it was that I wanted to make uh, really good friends that would last um, beyond just school. And I wanted to um, find a spiritual practice that would fit me. Um, Because at that point in time, I had long since stopped going to church. Um, And I didn't miss church, but I did want something, not that church ever filled for me, because church has never brought me peace, which is why it was easy you know, to walk away. One of the um, connection. Yeah. Like, like my mother really enjoys going to church and I like, I just, I never got that, you know, from church. Like I never, that, that feeling was never really there for me. So I was looking for something, um, because I didn't know what it was. And so like, um, while I was there, um, I had started kind of like meditating on my own. And then I actually met a classmate who introduced me to, um, Nichiren Buddhism, which is kind of like um, through SGI, uh, which is kind of like kind of like a church, but not really. I mean, it is. It's. it's I mean, because Buddhists don't really do church or like a whole lot of like super organized stuff. But SGI is kind of weird. Um, but anyway, so um, I had, you know, been meditating and um, I had started actually chanting mantra on my own. And so, like, being on my own spiritual journey, it was kind of like, you know, I had done a lot of reading of spiritual stuff. And I actually, you know, because I listened to a lot of radio, had been listening to, like, some of my favorite podcasts were um, based, you know, on on theology or religion or faith. And so I was like, I think I would be really good at this. And um, I just applied. <laughs> like, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And so... Um, I like started on the path to figure out like, you know, how I was going to get it all paid for and everything like that and applying. And so I am about to start my second year at Howard Divinity. And even though I don't have any school spirit, I am also on student council. Awesome. So it's the second and final year. Yes. No. So, um, I actually have um, decided that I am going to get um, certified in thanatology. So thanatology is death study. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hood College in Frederick has one of, it's one of either only three or four uh, thanatology studies programs in the country. So um, I am going to get a certificate in thanatology from them, which will basically uh, fill in the space that I have for electives. Um, at Howard Divinity. And um, so because I am going to be taking classes there and because I'll be having to travel back and forth to Frederick, I'll probably um, only take uh, probably 
three classes there. And then I'll probably try and uh, see if I can maybe get uh, three credits online um, at Howard. Um, so because I actually will be off campus and I will be subject to their schedule. And then also because um, so I had a little life smack. So um, when I before I even started Divinity School, all of these people, but especially the women who have been through Divinity School, kept telling me whatever unresolved shit you got going on in your life, it's all going to come to a head when you get to divinity school. Like you're not going to get through divinity school with no real life conflict. And you're not going to get through divinity school without having settled, you know, whatever it is that you got going on that's unresolved. And that totally has been the case this first year. So, um, you know, with my health being the way it is, I kind of need to slow down and I need to do um, self-care. So I'm not going to be taking as many credits. I'll still be full time, but I'm not going to take as many credits. And I'm just going to uh, take better care of myself because like if I run myself into the ground, then I can't do anything. And all this effort will have been for not. Um, so because I will be off campus and I'm going to, um, not be taking, uh, the 15 credit load that they recommend, I am looking at actually probably two years, uh, two more years. So it'll be probably for me four years instead of the standard three. Okay. And I'm cool with that because I am not in a rush and I want to be healthy um, but the good thing is that, you know, because it's all about the hustle, um, with the Thanatology certificate, I will actually be um, uh, able to be a, a grief counselor. So that'll give me, um, allow me to be uh, certified in grief counseling, um, which is good because, um, you know, if you're going to do, if you're going to be a chaplain, um, I, 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 I'm, I'm, my goal is to be a chaplain. And so um, hospice is, I think, what I will focus on from a clinical setting. But I'm also really interested in um, doing grief counseling, not necessarily as a chaplain, but as a counselor um, in high schools with teens. Um, because I feel like um, I like teenagers. I don't know why. I like that whole angsty period of life when, you know, kids are really starting to explore. Well, I, I think it's important. I think a lot of people discount teenagers, you know, and I think that that is like such an important, part, you know, time in people's lives, because that's when we develop a lot of the coping mechanisms that, you know, get us through life that will carry us into adulthood. Um, and that's when we really have a chance to, you know, it's, it's one of the first times when you get to decide, do you want to be like the people who raised you or do you want to be different? You know, I think as a teenager, it's one of the first times when you're really able to see like the faults or the humanity of the people around you. And you're able to see their humanity, you know, because, you know, you're seeing their faults. And I think that, you know, a lot of times um, we don't necessarily see healthy role models of ways to deal with conflict or, you know, like life just kind of being shitty sometimes. And so I really am interested in working with teenagers, especially people um, who have had a lot of trauma or grief um, that they need to process in their lives. Because um, one of the things that um, I've been really interested in since I've um, gotten sick 
Um, but just because I also um, am interested in like, you know, mental health and kind of like spirituality and stuff like that in general is, you know, one of the things that we all know about is post-traumatic stress disorder. One of the things that um, there is a flip side to post-traumatic stress, and that is post-traumatic growth. And the only difference between people who experience PTSD, which would be post-traumatic stress disorder, and PTSD, which would be post-traumatic growth, is people with post-traumatic growth, for whatever reason, have uh, coping mechanisms either that they've developed spontaneously or that they already had before the trauma that allowed them to, it's not that they're unaffected, it's not that they haven't suffered or that they haven't experienced pain, but they're able to take that trauma and use it to transform them into something better, you know, than what they were before. And I think that, you know, most people could definitely say that, you know, a lot of times we don't like to say, you know, things are better, we just like to say that they're different. But I think that, you know, to be able to, experience something really horrific that, you know, other people, it shatters them. You're able to kind of see something good in that or find something good in yourself from that. Like, I think that that definitely, you know, does make us better that because those people have experienced the healing, you know, that has helped them grow past their trauma and probably likely past where they were before the, the trauma. And I think that, you know, we need to take these horrible experiences that people go through and figure out how to make them transformative for the better and not for the worse. So, yeah. So ultimately um, uh, my goal is to do a bunch of different things, but help people, you know, grow and heal and, um, you know, just kind of, you know, be happy and figure out how to help people be more loving and joyful and have, you know, kind of a healing peace that flows through their lives. That's my goal. Bet. I also want to point out that, you know, there's a lot that I could have touched on. Like, I'm glad you mentioned at least the gemology. Uh, uh, Christy actually helped me uh, pull the whole wedding ring scenario off with my, with my wife. Uh, so she was very instrumental in that process. And it was, it was it was very funny going to do ring shopping and hear people try to like drop game on you, whatever. And Christy like subtly sh- shut them down but not let them know what she know what she knew. Just like, oh, you 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 seem to know a little bit. Like, uh, yeah, I have a friend who knows some stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, you should never tell people that you know more than you know because then, you know what I'm saying, it becomes a competition. And really, we're not trying to compete. We're just trying to get a good deal. Indeed. So if you need somebody to uh, perhaps uh, ride shotgun on some some ring shopping, if you got a little bit of duckers on the side, you might want to holler at K-Savage. Yes, for a fee, I will come ring shopping with you. <laughs> That's what's up. I, I want to thank you so much, Christy, for sitting down uh, and, and, and sharing essentially your life with us, letting uh-huh. us learn a little bit more about you. Um, I, I, for one, uh, enjoyed having the conversation, learned a little bit more about you, and I'm pretty sure the people that listen will as well. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, if you are looking to hear more of Christy Hunt, a.k.a. K-Savage, uh, you can always tune in to the, the back episodes we have in our archives and the catalog of Shit You Might Have Missed, featuring the usual suspects, where she, again, is one of the regular contributors to our program. Uh, 
uh, along with T. Rich, along with Slim Williams and myself. So um, outside of that, there are other things that we'll be looking for from uh, from uh, K. Savage. So until next time, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank my lovely guest, Miss Christy Hunt. Thank you. Thank uh-huh. you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for sharing. And uh, I want to thank you all again for listening. Uh, as always, I'd like to remind you that you can find us on the website, www.flashblackradio.com. You can always check us out on SoundCloud. Check us out on iTunes or your podcast app on your iPhone. You can also check us out on Google Play Music. And we are available in the Flash Black group on Facebook, the Flash Black page on Facebook. And we're available on Twitter at Flash Black Radio, at Flash Black News. Please follow us. Please share. Please give comments. Uh, let us know what you're thinking because we are interested in what you're thinking. If you have ideas or topics you want to discuss, we're willing to do that, especially on shit you might have missed. Until and next time. Listen, oh, sorry to interrupt, but if you listen, please remember to rate us because those ratings, you know, they're only really good for every podcast that you listen to. So one rating really isn't enough. You want to help us out and help us maybe get our ranking up although we have a small following we're trying and those ratings do help so always if you're gonna leave a comment please give us a thumbs up or a star yeah and tell your friends and tell your friends tell their friends and so forth indeed until next time ladies and gentlemen we thank you so much for your listenership uh we want you to stay blessed stay woke peace